Wealth management is not just for the wealthy. Everyone is entitled to their best retirement possible. Welcome to The Retirement Engineer with Jim Cruzan, your path to a bigger, bolder retirement. Brought to you by Caden Wealth Management, a firm that specializes in serving the mobility technology industry. In this podcast, we help you maximize your resources and engineer your best retirement through a process-driven approach so you can get the little things right. Drawing from years of expertise, Jim and his guests will simplify complex wealth management strategies and explore actionable ideas to help you protect your hard-earned wealth and take control of your future. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Episode 7 of The Retirement Engineer and a continuation of the discussion in Episode 6 on the importance of advanced planning in your wealth management journey. I'm Patrice Sikora with Jim Cruzan. Now, Jim, you did warn us last time that advanced planning is a major lever in the bigger, bolder retirement formula. And that was proven out by the fact that we only got through half of it last time, wealth enhancement and wealth transfer. So please, let's pick it up. Bring us home with the remaining elements, wealth preservation and charitable giving. All right. Excited to. You know what? It's really kind of interesting because uh, wealth preservation now causes us to kind of change a little bit our focus. Up till now, we've talked a a lot about assets and what do we do with the assets to create cash flow and what do we do with the assets from the standpoint of of investment management. But now we're, we're focused on preservation and the term wealth changes a bit. Now we're really focused on how can we preserve and protect and maintain the sum total of one's wealth. So now what we're doing is we're looking at the the term wealth from a, a much more expansive perspective. It's including not only the assets we accumulate, but also the other wealth that we have, homes, cars, boats, planes. And it also includes things such as how do we protect our, our income uh, or how do we protect our 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 cash flow and as a result it's a it's a it's a much more expansive topic and typically the way to resolve this or provide preservation is to use a lot of the risk mitigation tools that are out there and we hope to go into some of these with more detail and and also provide a couple of examples just to give you a sense for what that's about but so, jim first first when you're saying protecting assets from what what are we protecting from Right. So in the case of portfolio, we're protecting assets against big swings in value. But in terms of wealth, maybe we're protecting assets against lawsuits or uh, against creditors or against some other means of someone who is interested in taking assets away from you. Okay. Got so, that. so within that, uh, some of these solutions also have to do with legal entities and legal structures. And obviously, uh, we would want to uh, consult uh, a a licensed attorney who can help orchestrate and structure these types of facilities. So when we talk about mitigating tools, we typically talk about risk avoidance, risk retention, risk spreading, loss prevention and reduction. We kind of combine those, although they are slightly different, and then risk transfer. Those are the key 
strategies or tactics that can be used in just about every single case, whether we're talking about portfolios, homes, or some degree of, of uh, income or other assets. Five. All right. Let's start with number one then, because there is so much there. Again, it's going to be a good informational podcast. So let's start with avoidance. All right. Well, risk avoidance, just by definition, is simply reducing risk and potential loss by avoiding either ownership in assets or eliminating participation in activities, which <laughs> can expose one to a particular risk. Let me let me share with you a couple of examples. First, I can remember a, a few years ago we took a family vacation and we were off the uh, off the coast of Africa, and we wanted to cage dive with with great white sharks, and uh, we thought that would be a wonderful uh, thing to do, and uh, we we did, but there were people on our boat when it came time to go into the cage with all these great white fins you'll see circling all around, uh, they elected not to. So in their mind, the risk was being eaten alive by a shark. And the action to mitigate that risk was simply avoidance. I am not going into that okay, cage got it. <laughs> and being s- submerged underwater where I'm now face to face with those sharks, right? So that's that's a way of avoidance. Another example of that, more closer to home, it would be this. On occasion, there will be individuals who, for a variety of reasons, might be past experience. They want to maintain a high degree of liquidity within their portfolio. They don't want to have investments that are locked up for extended periods of time where they won't be able to get access to the assets or be able to draw an income from those assets. And, and there are a variety of, of investments and, and, uh, and investment strategies that involve these types of tools. Well, one of the easiest ways of mitigating that risk is simply avoiding those types of solutions. So annuities that would have five, six, seven, eight-year surrender charges or more, illiquid or non-traded real estate investment trusts that have no secondary market would be examples of assets that have a limited amount of current liquidity. And by simply avoiding those, we're avoiding that risk, at least for that particular client. Okay. Retention. Yeah. So retention is is the intentional acceptance of, of risk. And what can be done then to reduce some of that risk. Unfortunately, there are certain risks that we just can't mitigate away. As an example, somebody who may very well have 30 plus years of retirement can't very well uh, stay ahead of inflation without exposing them to some degree of stock market risk and some involvement in the stock market. An example close to home would be someone who feels that they need to prepare for long-term care. What if uh, they wound up in a nursing home, Mm -hmm. but they've elected maybe because of cost not to purchase a policy to cover that, but instead they've elected to structure their portfolio, maybe use certain trusts, 
that would reduce or mitigate some of that risk should they wind up in a nursing home or have assets they can readily call on to provide for those expenses while still allowing other assets to continue to support the other spouse who is not involved in a nursing home. That would be a, a example of, of retention. Another example of retention would be a situation where someone is taking distribution off their portfolio. The risk that they're worried about is sequential risk. Uh, you know, what if the market dropped a lot next year and I needed a sizable amount of money every year off my portfolio? I, I don't want to feel like I'm in a position where I'm digging out of a hole or selling things at an inopportune time. Well, you can't avoid the market. So you decide to retain some of that risk. And the way you do that is to say, all right, maybe what I do is create a, a, a cash flow bucket uh, that will be populated with three or so years of cash flow, money that I know I'm going to spend. And this money will be invested in money markets or short duration instruments that'll get some kind of rate of return, but it will not be exposed to market risk. That will allow me to take other assets and expose those more appropriately to market risk with the understanding that if there was a sizable drop in the market, I won't have to touch any of those assets for a three-year period or so because I've already got that future spend locked in. It's a way of retaining the risk, but eliminating effectively the trials and tribulations of Murphy's Law. You know, What if I need the money at the absolute wrong time? So that would be retention. But now retention sounds like it's an every, everybody does that. It, it's, it's common, isn't it? Well, in, in, in the wealth management universe, dealing with investable assets with the idea of growing them and staying ahead of inflation, we certainly can't avoid yeah. the market. There needs to be some degree of retention, but we can also use other tools as well. As an example, um, the third benefit or the third strategy is risk spreading. Hmm. And, and spreading is just the classic example of diversification. Let's not put all our eggs in one basket. Let's not have a super large concentrated position in a stock, but rather let's have a diversified portfolio with many companies involved in many industries, many of which may be somewhat negatively correlated with each other. So you get some zigging and zagging. If something's going up, something's going down. If something's going down, we're getting somewhat bailed out elsewhere. And as a result, that's a, a strategy that is often used. Now, spreading can also deal with other types of assets in other types of experiences. It, it can deal with diversifying or spreading out risk over time periods. It can talk about spreading out risks over geographic areas. If uh, I owned rental properties, uh, maybe I would want to own rental properties in different geographic markets because much like the stock market, 
certain areas ebb when other areas flow. And that might create a, a, a more certain um, return off of that portfolio. Another example, as we see these days with interest rates now becoming a bit more attractive, is this worry that, well, are the feds going to cut rates here at some point in time? And what will that do now to what are really attractive CD rates? So do I want to spread my risk that the Fed may cut rates out by owning several different CDs uh, with several different maturities? Own something that might be six months. So if rates are still higher six months from now, that'll mature and I can then lock into something higher still. But maybe I also want to own something that's 12 or 18 months out so that in the event that the Fed cuts rates, I still have some money out there for a longer maturity, enjoying a much higher rate than what I could get currently. All of those are examples of spreading. And then risk loss prevention and reduction. So with risk loss, uh, with risk prevention and reduction, what we're really talking about doing is not only reducing the probability of loss, but also hopefully mitigating some of the effects of that loss. So the idea is, look, it could happen. There's a pretty reasonable probability it will happen. Uh, We can't avoid it. We could use some of these other techniques, but also what else can we do that might help to better protect us against what could be some type of a loss? An example. You know, maybe in the prior example, somebody who owns real estate has a diversified portfolio because they don't want to have everything in one complex. What if it burnt down? What if it caught on fire? Well, one way is to spread the number of units out over a number of different properties. Another way of doing it is internally using fire suppression systems. Uh, extinguishers, those types of things, using fire retardant material, et cetera, so that in the event of the risk fire, uh, we have the ability to hopefully reduce some of the damage. Another example for clients that are in the coastal areas are hurricanes, and those are fairly common now, and it's a risk that one should certainly consider. Outside of leaving the area, what do you do? Well, you can look at using building materials that are up to a particular code that will withstand a certain level of high winds. Glass and other materials would fall into that category. Um, You can use window shutters and storm shutters that will close off doors and windows and prevent some of that as well. You're not going to prevent or minimize the effect of having a hurricane roll through your neighborhood, but you can certainly minimize potentially some of the risk to your particular property. Uh, That would be a great example of loss prevention and reduction. Now, what about some other portfolio risk? I mean, we hear the phrase stop loss. Talk to me about that. Stop loss would be an example of loss prevention as well. And it uh, can be used in portfolios and, and sometimes used quite successfully. The idea of a stop loss is an individual can place a, an, an order to, to sell a particular stock, 
at a uh, with a particular price limit in mind. So the idea is, I have a stock that's worth fifty dollars a share. I really don't want to see that stock drop to ten or eleven or twelve dollars, but I'm willing to accept a ten percent loss, which would be about price forty five dollars. So between fifty and forty five, I'm okay. But once it hits 45, this stop loss I placed will then become an open order. And then the stock will be sold at whatever the next trade opportunity is. It might not be 45, but at 45, it becomes an open order and it happens immediately. Another type of stop loss, very similar, is a stop limit order which is nearly the same. Again, this $45 price target with a $50 stock price. But what happens is now, if the stock drops to 45, this limit order goes in and it becomes a market limit order, which says, I will only sell the stock if I can, in fact, get $45. So when you think of stop loss, it will guarantee execution. You might not get the price you want because it becomes a market order in a, and in a very robustly traded market that may be problematic. Mm-hmm. And then in the case of a stop limit order, it guarantees price, but it doesn't necessarily guarantee execution. Right. And, and I can remember back, it wasn't that many years ago, where we had a a few really strange trading days where uh, it turned out that the market opened down significantly. I mean, many, many, many percentage points. And later in the day, it was determined that it was was an error. It was a a bad trade. Somebody added way too many zeros uh, at the end of whatever the trade was, right? Yes. And, And it becomes a real problem. Right. So if you had a stock that you were perfectly happy with, but you wanted to protect against downside risk and you put a stop order in, the stock's at 50, uh, the market opens up much further down and the market opens up at what would have been equivalent for that stock of $38 and you get taken out at 38, much lower than you would have thought. And in the case of a stop limit order, you think you're doing a bit better but here we are at the beginning of the, the night before, stock's at 50, you're perfectly happy. Market opens up, down 38. You're not going to sell there. But then as it's discovered that it was a human error and the market fully recovers back to 50, you get sold out at 45. Oh, whoa. So in both cases, there's some degree of risk. In our practice, the portfolios we run, we generally use uh, market minders, where there's a, a human kind of as a, a filter. So in a in a in a market that is fastly trading, or a market where there's some uncertainty as to whether it's human error or not, we just simply don't put those trades in, and it requires a lot more work. Right. Uh, it requires a lot more infrastructure. But I think considering the damage that could be done from a badly filled stop loss. And what we try to achieve, the outcomes can be significantly better. 
Now, the fifth way you have to preserve wealth and avoid risk is risk transfer. Correct. And that's that's an area that everybody uses. Uh, and it's it generally the idea of taking a risk that we can't avoid or preserve or protect, and uh, we need to transfer it. We need to move it to somebody else who's going to take on that risk for us. And that's generally in some way, shape, or form an insurance company. Uh, so we do this all the time, right? We, we buy life insurance because we want to remove the risk of dying prematurely when we don't have the opportunity to grow assets for our, our family. Mm-hmm. Um, we may secure disability insurance because early on as a professional, you know, it's your career and your ability to earn a living that's going to drive all of your accumulation and all of your goals and desires and, and protecting that income is really job one. We do the same with homeowners insurance, et cetera. I mentioned the example a while back about long-term care, the need for a nursing home. And the example was retaining that risk and building up a, a, a sub-account to afford the opportunity to use that to, to cover expenses. But for a lot of folks who have a, a keen interest in deferring that risk, but they don't have the asset base that would allow them to self-insure and retain that risk, uh, they generally may need to use an insurance company and look at some type of long-term care insurance that can move some of that risk for a period of time to a, another organization. Another example of that is the use of umbrella liability policies. You know, everybody has some degree of that attached to their auto owner's policy. But think of it this way. If you are successful in accumulating wealth, there's just a whole lot more wealth there. And there's a whole lot more wealth that can be taken away from you via a lawsuit as a result of an accident. So one of the easiest things one can do, and it's marginally more expensive, is to increase dramatically uh, the amount of liability insurance one has. That way, you're also putting the insurance company's legal team on notice. And if there was a challenge, you would have your attorneys and certainly their attorneys fighting for a much better outcome. So it's a way of mitigating and transferring some of that risk to, uh, to, to someone else. These are great wealth preservation tools, but tell me, are there any legal documents we need for these? So in the case of life insurance ownership, not typically, uh, you can own life insurance through a, a variety of, of uh, entitlements individually through a corporation, uh, through a trust. But uh, there are other legal entities that can be used to also uh, defray some degree of, of, of risk. Uh, a really good example is the use of, let's say, a, an LLC or a limited liability corporation for a rental property. In, in a lot of cases, uh, individuals may own rental homes or a, a small office building, and they may own it with their, their spouse, or they may own it uh, in, a, uh, in a partnership. Um, but you can also own it in a limited liability corporation. And although I'm not giving legal advice here, I would certainly suggest that if there was a, an issue, even something as minor as a, a slip and fall, and, and there was some lawsuit that was involved, 
the lawsuit would be against the owner of the building, which would be the LLC and any assets that would be in the LLC, as opposed to suing you, the owner, and now having access to the sum total of your accumulated wealth. So being able to mitigate and compartmentalize some of this risk is also really important. And there are really terrific uh, legal entities that can be used to do just that. Well, let's move to the next point. And that is something I think everyone wishes they could do or would love to do if they could, charitable giving. What does that role, what role does that play in advanced planning? And really, why should it be part of someone's retirement plan? Like I say, I think we would love to be able to do it, but why? Why is it a good part of the plan? Well, initially, when we talk to someone about retirement, uh, we try to get a better sense for just how much cash flow do we really need? And we frame that with a discussion about needs, which are bills, wants, which are all the experiential spending, the, the fun stuff that you want to do, and then wishes. And wishes are kind of the top of the uh, pyramid. And to a, lot, a large group of individuals, it's, it's not something that they really think about or care to put a lot of effort in. But for some, there is a, a driving need to give back. Uh, for some, it may just be to continue with some gifting to the local church or parish. Uh, there may be a, a foundation or a, a school of higher learning or a medical organization uh, that there's an, a, an affinity with, and they would like to provide some kind of a gift, effectively making the world a bit better for the fact that they were in it. And in that regard, charitable gifting is a huge component of one's um distribution plan. That said, in addition to the feeling that you get from giving and, and, and doing good, if charitable gifting is structured properly, there's also some tax advantages to that as well. And in retirement, since there are things that happen that require us and expose us to additional taxable income over time, Having this as a way of offsetting some of that uh, tax obligation is is important, or at least interesting, or at least worth talking about. Additionally, for those who are charitably inclined, the ability to be able to harness um, required minimum distributions and such much, much later also makes planning around their retirement nest egg that much more important. So you're so, doing good, good in two ways: good for the charity and actually good for yourself. If if structured properly, yes, yes. So uh, there there are there are a number of different strategies that can be used. Um, let's talk about just uh, outright gifting uh, to a charity. Uh, many people think about gifting to a charity as uh, let's just stroke a, a check and I'm going to send that off to some charitable organization. And I may or may not be able to take that right off. And that works. Believe me, as far as the charity is concerned, whether you're sending them a <laughs> gift or you're sending them an asset, it spends just the same. So we find that charitably inclined clients can get a whole lot more mileage out of their gift uh, by gifting appreci appreciated assets, uh, non-cash assets. And again, the example is very similar to the example we had before 
about asset transfer. If I want to make a $10,000 gift and I can write a check or I can give $10,000 of stock. If I gave $10,000 of stock and that stock cost me $2,000 and I was planning on selling it and using the cash to give, uh, I would have an $8,000 gain and I would pay $1,200 in taxes. And then that $10,000 gift after the tax hit is really only $8,800 of gifting. So between the write-off that I get, which is now $8,800 as opposed to $10,000, and the fact that there's also a tax implication in there as well, I'm getting much, much less bang for my gifting buck. The charity is also getting less. But if I can take that $10,000 stock that cost me $2,000 and gift it, I'm getting the full extent of the $10,000 gift with zero tax liability. I'm also giving it to a charity who will sell it. And because of their charitable structure, will not pay taxes on that as well. So it's really a win-win. It's a it's a it's an easy way to get rid of some real taxable landmines in one's portfolio. Again, if one happens to be charitably inclined. I like the idea. I like it very much. Well, suppose you wanted to do it in a bunch. Tell me about bunch charitable gifts. So as much as we like charitable gifting, unfortunately, in not every instance uh, will we actually see uh, any type of measurable taxable benefit. And the reason for that is the vast majority of tax filers these days file their 1040, file their tax returns, and they take the, uh, the, the standard deduction. And because of tax changes that happened under the prior administration, those standard deductions have been somewhat increased to a point today where when you consider your itemized deductions, how much non-reimbursable medical expense you have, does it exceed 10% of your salary? What do you pay in in real estate property tax, et cetera? You find that the standard deduction far and away is greater than these itemized deductions. So as a result, you take the standardized deduction because it yields a better tax benefit. It reduces your taxable income. Well, if you're not itemizing, you can't deduct the charitable gift. So it's either one or the other. So a strategy that works, especially for clients who are charitably inclined, is to what's referred to as bunching charitable gifts. And, and the way you would do this, again, it's, it's kind of planning ahead. Let me give you an example. Let's say that we have a, a couple who generally gives $50 a week to their church. They put it in the, the collection platter and they do that religiously, no pun intended. <laughs> and, uh, and as a result, over the course of the year, they contribute somewhere between $2,500 and say $3,000 a year. And when they consider that as a gift, 
in addition to all of their other potential itemized deductions, they still might not have more than the 27,700, which is the standard deduction. So in that case, they take the standard deduction. And while it was a great thing to give the church $3,000 a year, there was really no tax advantage associated with it. So what if instead we said, well, why don't we do this? Why don't we take the $3,000 a year that you give and let's just advance pay maybe the next five years of gift? I mean, you're planning on giving the church $3,000 a year and you're going to do it the next five, 10, 15 years. But now let's give the church $15,000, which is five years of payment. Make sure they understand that you're not giving them anything else <laughs> over the next five years. Uh, and, and as a result, now in this calendar year, we can now take a $15,000 charitable gift and maybe now, when we consider real estate taxes and non-reimbursable medical expenses and other items that would be deemed itemized items, you're over the $27,700 threshold to which you now want to itemize, and now you can write off the full extent of that gift. I like it. It, it, it works, and it just requires a little bit of thought and a little bit of uh, pre-planning. And it, it's one of those things that you can actually do without actually having a specific charity in mind. How? How can you do that? There's a tool that's out there uh, called a, a donor-advised fund. Right. And a donor-advised fund, if you think about it, it it's really quite similar to a 401k for charitable gifting. It's an account that can be open. Money can be invested over a period of time. And the uh, results of the investing within the account uh, may, may grow over time, much like the results of you putting money in your 401k may grow over time as well. The big difference, though, is unlike the last example where we're giving a church a particular dollar amount. In this case, I'm getting the charitable deduction by simply putting the money in the donor-advised fund. Once it's there, it's considered a completed gift. I'm getting my tax deduction. Down the road, and it's an unlimited number of years, I can decide what charities I want to give it to. So I don't have to decide on who gets the gift today. Also, if something were to happen to someone who owns a donor-advised fund, the, the donor-advised fund can then be passed from one generation to another. So as an example, my children could inherit the responsibilities of the donor advised fund that my wife and I established. And if we still have a balance left, they will then ultimately be responsible. In fact, my wife and I established one a number of years ago, and we continue to fund this, and we have never made a direct gift from it. But the idea is we want to build the base up to a point where the gifts at some point will really be quite meaningful. And then the idea is to call the family in. And as a family, we can then decide 
on where we would like to give. And the idea is it's a way for me to make sure that uh, giving back to a community is getting passed on from our generation to my children's generation. So using a donor advised fund is a really interesting way of bunching. And it becomes a tool to bunch without having an idea of what direct charity you want to give to. And because of that, it becomes a really interesting way of, of tax mitigation as, as an example. And this is somewhat of an extreme. There are a, a number of uh, companies in, in the industries that we are fairly close to that are beginning to offer headcount reductions, voluntary severance packages, et cetera. And in many cases, these severance packages can be as much as a year's worth of salary. And in many cases, these severance packages are paid out in one fell swoop mm -hmm. as one large check. So if you had someone who was retiring or took a package, but they had six or nine months of income before this package was announced, and before the end of the year, they're getting now paid another full year of salary in that one tax year. They're going to have a year and a half, a year of in three quarters of taxable income, significantly more than they would normally have at any one given point in time. Most assuredly, pushing their effective tax rate up and their marginal tax rate up as well. But if that individual now with this flush of liquidity was charitably minded he might want to look at this and say, hey, this is a great opportunity for me to pay the church the next five or 10 years. Let me open a donor advice fund, move some of that money over that I have now just sitting in the bank. And now I can create a, a tax deduction that will then help offset some of this tax liability that I have, uh, have otherwise. So it becomes really kind of an interesting tool that can be used around uh, investment and retirement planning. There was one thing you mentioned, though, about the donor advised fund that I find very attractive. You can bring the family in. You can make this a family yeah. decision. I think, it's a huge, I think it's a huge opportunity. Yeah. And uh, I know when, when we talk about this concept with many of our clients, we talk about it just that way. Yeah. It's, it's an opportunity to bind next generation. It becomes kind of a commonality. Right. Uh, you know, in, in, in my family, when the kids were quite young, we, we would get all of these solicitations from every charity known to man. Uh, and, you know, they, they would send you an envelope with the, the, the thing you need to send back. And they would give you, you know, either envelope stickies or maybe a little notepad, <laughs> right? And, and, and they would want, you know, their, their request was $7, but if you could round it up to 10, that would be great. So what we would do is, in our family room, we have a, a pool table and I used to cover the top of the pool table with every single one of these solicitations and envelopes. And then when the kids, and they were tiny, I mean, they, they weren't even in high school, I would have them just walk around the table and both of our children would pick uh, five envelopes. And in many cases, it was the most colorful yes. or it was this or that. <laughs> and then I was, I was going to make that gift on, on their behalf. Well, we're kind of doing the same thing, but just at a, a much grander scale and, and in a more sophisticated way. But it's exactly the same thing. That's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. All right. So we've got one more item to go through here. 
retirement assets, RMDs come to mind. What do we do here? Exactly. This is the uh, gift that keeps on giving. We can't, we can avoid it for a while, but eventually it uh, catches up with us. And uh, uh, an RMD is a required minimum distribution. And uh, initially it was the age upon which one would have to start taking money out of their retirement-based accounts. Uh, So the government said, hey, uh, we allowed you to take a write-off when you put the money in. We didn't tax any of the money while it was accumulating, but now you're in your 70s, enough's enough. We need you to start taking some money out because we want to see some uh, taxes as a result of this. And and it used to be 70 and a half. And then a few years ago, that was increased to uh, 72. And with this uh, SECURE Act, uh, the uh, SECURE Act Part 2, that was actually pushed out to age 75. But for most folk who are closing in on 72, uh, who are not quite there, that age will be anywhere from 73, 74, or 75. So it's, it, it's, it's a ways out. But once that happens, the amount of money that has to be distributed from the uh, IRA is a percentage of the uh, account value, and it can be somewhat sizable. And uh, in many cases, we have clients who really don't need to take the full extent of what they're required to take, and we're, which means that they're effectively now paying taxes on dollars that they really don't need to spend, uh, which is probably one of the most inefficient ways of, of dealing with one's net worth. So in that particular case, if we have a, a client who is charitable. Again, the example of somebody who's just putting $50 a month into a, or $50 a week, I should say, in a, uh, a church collection basket. What we suggest they do is they utilize what's called a QCD, which is a qualified charitable deduction. And essentially, we're cutting third-party checks to qualified charities church or otherwise, directly from the IRA. And the gifting coming from the IRA is is considered part of the required minimum distribution. So in other words, if I've got a client right now who has taxable income from other sources and is giving $3,000 a year to a charity, he may or may not be able to deduct that. We talked about bunching and the inefficiencies because of standard deductions. But if instead I take that $3,000 and I move it through the IRA and have the IRA pay the church those $3,000, it immediately reduces his taxable income. As an example, if he was required to take $30,000 a year, taxable, and I took 3000 and we moved that over to the church, what he would be required to take out of the account to satisfy his R&D is now 27000 30000 minus three. He has less taxable income, less modified adjusted gross income. It becomes a win-win. Also, QCDs are available for anybody who is over 70 and a half regardless of whether they're currently taking a required minimum distribution. So 
if we have somebody who would like to pare down their their IRA and, and so that they don't have quite as large an RMD for at least a couple of years, they could do a charitable deduction. Uh, it will not incur tax liability and it helps to dumb down the, uh, the balance a little bit. So it's, it's quite impactful. And the fact that you can do this regardless of whether you're taking standard deduction or not is a big, big win. That's fantastic. Jim, you have certainly given us much, much, much to think about. You've given us a better understanding of why advanced planning is really a crucial part of a retirement plan. Little nuances, life events that can happen. But if you've planned for them, you've addressed carefully with an advisor who really knows what they're talking about, you can find a positive and influential impact on your retirement experience. Advanced planning really does have the ability to make a bigger, bolder retirement. Coming up in the next episode, we are going to explore the last element of that bigger, bolder retirement formula, relationship management. I can't wait for that one. For a free copy of the bigger, bolder retirement formula and other free retirement planning tools, please visit this episode's show notes. And if you'd like to take a closer look at how the bigger, bolder retirement formula can enhance your retirement plans, contact Caden Wealth at 800 638-6900 or visit cadenwealth.com and click get started. The link is in the show notes. Please be sure to subscribe to the Retirement Engineer podcast so you don't miss future episodes and follow at Caden Wealth on Facebook, Instagram, and all the social media platforms. Let us know what you think in the comments and share topics that you'd like us to discuss in future episodes. Following and sharing this podcast helps us to make a bigger impact. And thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Retirement Engineer. Thank you for listening to The Retirement Engineer with Jim Cruzan. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. Visit our website at www.cadenwealth.com or give us a call at 800-638-6900. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of Jim Cruzan and this episode's guests not necessarily those of Caden Wealth Management. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.